Good evening. I'm Anthony Robustelli, author of I Want to Tell You, The Definitive Guide to the Music of the Beatles, and this is the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. Each week I'll be playing stripped-down, deconstructed mixes of classic Beatles songs, highlighting different instruments and vocals in a way that will truly amaze you. Imagine sitting in the control room at EMI Studios and having the opportunity to peel away the layers of a song, discovering new elements that you never knew existed. This is the closest you can get to that experience. So sit back, tune in, and enjoy the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. I'll make you maybe next time around. A few months ago, we did something a bit different. A Beatles multi-track meltdown show without any Beatles or solo Beatles songs. Instead, we focused on material from groups and artists that the Beatles worked with, either as a group or during their solo career. For the first four Beatles albums, producer George Martin was the only other musician who performed on record with the Beatles, besides engineer Norman Smith, who claims to have played bongos on A Hard Day's Night, and session drummer Andy White, who played on the LP version of Love Me Do and P.S. I Love You. It wasn't until their fifth LP help that session musicians were brought in to augment their sound, with a string quartet on Yesterday and flute on You've Got to Hide Your Love Away. Although session musicians would be used on a number of songs from their 7th LP Revolver until their last released LP Let It Be, few celebrity musicians played on any Beatles records. One of the reasons the Beatles split up was that they were all interested, in varying degrees, to work with other musicians. So as solo artists, they took full advantage of this newfound freedom, and each Beatle would work with myriad musicians that were artists in their own right from 1968 onward. We'll start tonight's show with a band whose guitarist is the only guitarist, other than Harrison, Lennon, and McCartney, to ever play on a Beatles record, Eric Clapton. Last time we played a song from Cream, but tonight we'll be playing the classic song Layla by Derek and the Dominoes, released in 1970 on the album Layla and Other Assorted Love Songs. While only reaching number 12 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart, the track has since become a staple of classic rock radio. The song featured Eric Clapton on acoustic and electric guitars, Dwayne Allman on lead and slide guitar, Jim Gordon on drums, percussion, and piano, Carl Radle on bass, and Bobby Whitlock on organ, piano, and backing vocals. It is recorded at Criteria Studios in Miami and produced by Tom Dowd, who had introduced Clapton to Allman after an Allman Brothers concert. After Cream broke up, Clapton made an album with Blind Faith and then hit the road with the husband and wife duo Delaney and Bonnie. In the spring of 1970, he found out that the majority of their group was leaving and took advantage of this opportunity to form a new band called Derek and the Dominoes. While recording the album, Dwayne Allman joined Clapton's band as a guest. Producer Tom Dowd spoke of their chemistry as guitarists. There had to be some sort of telepathy going on, because I've never seen spontaneous inspiration happen at that rate and level. One of them would play something, and the other reacted instantaneously. Never once did either of them have to say, Could you play that again, please? It was like the two hands in a glove, and they got tremendously off on playing with each other. Layla was originally supposed to be a ballad, but after Allman composed a signature riff, the song became a mid-tempo rocker. The recording of the first section consisted of six guitar tracks, a rhythm track by Clapton, three tracks of harmonies played by Clapton, the main power chord riff on both channels and two harmonies against that main riff, one on the left and one on the right channel, a track of solos by Allman and one track with both Allman and Clapton playing the signature riffs of the song in octaves or unison out of the same Fender Champ amplifier. The piano coda of the song was not originally part of it. Clapton heard drummer Jim Gordon playing the piano part and convinced him to use it as part of the song. For many years, Gordon has been officially credited with this part, but keyboardist Bobby Whitlock tells a different story. Jim took that piano melody from his ex-girlfriend, Rita Coolidge. I know, because in the D&B days, I lived in John Garfield's old house in the Hollywood Hills, and there was a guest house with an upright piano in it. Rita and Jim were up there in the guest house and invited me to join in on writing this song with them called Time. Her sister Priscilla wound up recording it with Booker T. Jones. Jim took the melody from Rita's song and didn't give her credit for writing it. Her boyfriend ripped her off. In 1983, Gordon, an undiagnosed schizophrenic, attacked his mother with a hammer before fatally stabbing her, and as a result, received a sentence of 16 years to life. Although the court accepted that he had schizophrenia, changes in the California laws prevented him from using insanity as a defense. Gordon has been denied parole a number of times and currently resides at the California Medical Facility in Vacaville, California. The song's lyrics were inspired by the story of Layla and Majnun by Persian poet Nizami Ganjavi. The story of a young man who falls hopelessly in love with a beautiful, unavailable woman and goes crazy because he can't marry her touched Clapton deeply as he was in a similar circumstance. Clapton's muse, George Harrison's wife, Patty Boyd. He would marry her in 1978, a year after Harrison and Boyd's divorce, and Harrison would attend the wedding with McCartney and Starr. But by 1988, things weren't going well, and the couple divorced. 
Although Clapton was friendly with all of the Beatles, he was especially close with Harrison and played on While My Guitar Gently Weeps, co-wrote Badge with him for his group Cream, which Harrison played guitar on, played at the concert for Bangladesh and on the All Things Must Pass LP, and convinced Harrison to do a 12-date tour in Japan in December of 1991. In 2002, he shared co-musical director duties with Jeff Lynne for the Concert for George held at the Royal Albert Hall on the one-year anniversary of his death. Clapton also played with Lennon as part of the Dirty Mac for the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus, with the Plastic Ono Band in the summer of 69 for the Toronto Rock and Roll Revival Festival, and on the single Cold Turkey.
John Lennon would only have one number one single in the United States during his lifetime. The 1974 duet with Elton John, Whatever Gets You Through the Night. While in the studio, Elton bet Lennon that the song would top the charts, something that Lennon thought absurd. It wasn't even his first choice for a single, but was chosen by Capitol Records Vice President Al Corey, the same man that convinced Paul McCartney to release singles from the Band on the Run LP, a decision that helped to take the LP to number one months after its release. Elton secured from Lennon a promise to appear on stage at one of his performances should the record indeed hit number one. When the record reached the top of the charts, a very shaky John Lennon appeared at Elton John's Thanksgiving performance at Madison Square Garden on November 28, 1974. It was his last major concert appearance. Elton would cover the Beatles' Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds with Lennon playing guitar and singing backing vocals under the pseudonym Dr. Winston O'Boogie. The B-side was Lennon's One Day at a Time. It would top the U.S. and Canadian charts and reach number 10 in the U.K., after Lennon's death, Elton would pen Empty Garden, Hey Hey Johnny, with lyrics by longtime collaborator Bernie Taupin in memory of his friend, as well as an instrumental tribute entitled The Man Who Never Died. Tonight we'll hear a remix of his 1973 single, Saturday Night's All Right for Fightin', from his best-selling LP, the double record, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Of its 17 songs, six of them have become staples of classic rock radio, including Benny and the Jets, Candle in the Wind, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, Sweet Painted Lady, and Harmony. We'll follow with a remix of Stevie Wonder's epic track, Living for the City, from his 1973 Intervision album. The song would reach number one on the R&B charts and number eight on Billboard's Top 100. Wonder played all of the instruments on the song, and the majority of the album, and it was one of the first songs to deal with racism in the U.S. in such a profound way. Wonder released an exciting version of We Can Work It Out in 1970 on his album Sign Sealed Delivered, and chose it as a single in 1971. That single reached number 13 on the Billboard Hot 100 and earned him his second Grammy Award nomination in 1972 for Best Male R&B Vocal Performance. It would be 11 years before he actually worked with the Beatle, and with great commercial success. In 1982, Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder had a number one hit together. For McCartney, Ebony and Ivory's run atop the chart was the longest of any of his post-Beatles work, and second longest career-wise behind Hey Jude. For Wonder, it was his longest-running chart topper. It marked the first time that any single released by any member of the Beatles hit the Billboard R&B chart. It was McCartney's record 28th song to hit number one on the Billboard 100. The song closed McCartney's number one LP, Tug of War, which also featured another song by the duo, The Funk Jam, What's That You're Doing, one of my favorites. Wonder also was present at Burbank Studios on March 28, 1974, when McCartney stopped by the studio while Lennon was producing Harry Nielsen's album Pussycats. An impromptu jam session was recorded with Lennon on guitar and vocals, McCartney singing harmony and playing Ringo Starr's drums, Wonder on electric piano and vocals, Linda McCartney on organ, May Pang on tambourine, Jesse Ed Davis on guitar, Harry Nielsen on vocals, Don McLean's producer Ed Freeman on bass, and Bobby Keys on saxophone. A bootleg album of the proceedings entitled A Toot and a Snore in 74 was released in 1992. We had a way to test our plan 
his sister's black, but she is shown the pretty. Her skirt is short, but Lord, her legs are sturdy. To walk to school, she's got to get up early. Her clothes are old, but never are they dirty. Living just enough, just enough for the city. Her brother's smart. He's got more sense than many. His patience long, but soon he won't have any. To find a job is like a haystack needle. 'Cause where he lives, they don't use colored people. Living just enough, just enough for the city. Back with part two of the No Beatles, Beatles multi-track meltdown. Next up, the title track from Hotel California, the first Eagles album with Ringo Starr's brother-in-law and all-star band member Joe Walsh on guitar. The album would be their best-selling studio LP with over 32 million copies sold worldwide and would also be the last to feature founding member bass player Randy Meisner. His replacement, Timothy B. Schmidt from Poco, would also play in Starr's second all-star band alongside Walsh. In addition to live shows, Starr's brother-in-law also contributed to some of Starr's studio recordings, including his most recent, Postcards from Paradise, which featured the song Bridges, co-written with Starr. On February 12, 2012, Walsh appeared on stage with Paul McCartney, Bruce Springsteen, Dave Grohl, and McCartney's band at the Staples Center in Los Angeles to close the Grammy Awards show, and was featured in several songs on the CBS special The Night That Changed America, a Grammy salute to the Beatles, which aired on February 9, 2014, 50 years after the Beatles' first appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show. Hotel California was based on an instrumental recording by guitarist Don Felder. Glenn Fry elaborates on the origins of the song. The song began as a demo tape, an instrumental by Don Felder. He'd been submitting tapes and song ideas to us since he joined the band, always instrumentals since he didn't sing. But this particular demo, unlike many of the others, had room for singing. It immediately got our attention. The first working title of the name we gave it was Mexican Reggae. The plain dealer and music critic John Soder asked Don Henley about the lyrics and got a scathing reply that showed how nasty Henley could be. On Hotel California, you sing, So I called up the captain, please bring me my wine. He said, we haven't had that spirit here since 1969. I realize I'm probably not the first to bring this to your attention, but wine isn't a spirit. Wine is fermented. Spirits are distilled. Do you regret that lyric? Henley's response? Thanks for the tutorial. And no, you're not the first to bring this to my attention. And you're not the first to completely misinterpret the lyric and miss the metaphor. Believe me, I've consumed enough alcoholic beverages in my time to know how they are made and what the proper nomenclature is. But that line in the song has little or nothing to do with alcoholic beverages. It's a socio-political statement. 
My only regret would be having to explain it in detail to you, which would defeat the purpose of using literary devices in songwriting and lower the discussion to some silly and irrelevant argument about chemical processes. Phew. The song also mentions the band Steely Dan in a subtle way. On their 1976 album, The Royal Scam, the song Everything You Did features the line, Turn up the Eagles, the neighbors are listening. Glenn Fry said, Apparently Walter Becker's girlfriend loved the Eagles, and she played them all the time. I think it drove him nuts, so the story goes that they were having a fight one day, and that was the genesis of the line. The two bands shared a manager, Irving Azoff, and the Eagles stated that they were fans of Steely Dan, so there probably wasn't any animosity between the bands. The Eagles did, however, respond to the name check in Hotel California the same year with the lyric, They stab out their steely knives, but they just can't kill the beast. Frey commented, We just wanted to allude to Steely Dan rather than mentioning them outright, so Dan got changed to knives, which is still, you know, a penile metaphor. We'll follow with Billy Joel's title track from his fifth studio LP, The Stranger, released in September 1977. While his four previous albums had been moderately successful, The Stranger became Joel's true, critical, and commercial breakthrough, spending six weeks at number two on the U.S. album charts. It remains his best-selling non-compilation album to date, and was ranked number 70 on Rolling Stones magazine's list of 500 greatest albums of all time. By 1976, Joel finally had a touring band he was happy with, consisting of Doug Stegmeyer on bass, Liberty DeVito on drums, and Richie Cannata on saxophone, flute, clarinet, and organ. But he still didn't have a guitarist, so for The Stranger, he featured the talents of session musicians Hiram Bullock and Steve Kahn. Joel met with producer George Martin, and was interesting in having him work on the new record. Martin was intrigued, but didn't want to use Joel's band, which had become an important part of his sound after three albums with session musicians, so it never materialized. Joel decided to work with record producer Phil Ramone because he felt that he was in favor of using his band. Julian Lennon would later hear Joel's Beatlesque album The Nylon Curtain and have Phil Ramone produce his debut album Valat. The album was truly his breakthrough with four hit singles. As Joel was composing The Stranger, he whistled the track's signature theme for producer Phil Ramone in order to figure out what instrument should play it. Ramone replied, no you don't, that's The Stranger, the whistling. After the album's success, George Martin allegedly wrote Joel a letter that read, You were right. I was wrong. I should have considered working with your band. Congratulations. In July of 2008, Billy Joel played the last concerts at Shea Stadium in Queens, New York, before it was demolished, and Paul McCartney performed two songs, I Saw Her Standing There and Let It Be with Him. A phenomenal moment.
disregard the danger Though we share so many secrets There are some we never tell Why were you so surprised That you never saw the stranger Did you ever let your lover See the stranger in yourself Don't be afraid to try again Everyone goes south Every now and then Ooh, you've done it Why can't someone else? You should know by now You've been there yourself Once I used to believe I was such a great romancer Then I came home to a woman That I could not recognize When I pressed her for a reason She refused to even answer It was then I felt the stranger Kicked me right between the eyes We disregard the danger Though we share so many secrets There are some we never tell Why were you so surprised That you never saw the stranger Did you ever let your lover See the stranger in yourself? We're back with part two of the No Beatles, Beatles multi-track meltdown. Another McCartney connection goes a bit deeper. Elvis Costello, original name Declan Patrick McManus, was always a huge Beatles fan and came from a musical background. Although he was born in London, his mother was from Liverpool and ended up settling there. His father, Ross McManus, was a musician and band leader and provided his son with his first broadcast recording in a television commercial for R. White's Lemonade. Ross wrote and sang the song while his son provided backing vocals. The advertisement won a silver award at the 1974 International Advertising Festival. Costello had already recorded 11 studio albums before his collaboration with McCartney in 1987. The duo worked well together, with Costello adding an edge that was reminiscent of Lennon and McCartney's partnership. They composed a dozen songs together, which showed up on multiple albums by McCartney and Costello, with Macca playing bass on two songs on Costello's Spike album, This Town, and the hit co-written single, Veronica. They also composed My Brave Face, You Want Her Too, Don't Be Careless Love, and That Day Is Done from McCartney's 1989 Flowers in the Dirt LP, Veronica and Pads, Paws, and Claws from Costello's 1989 Spike LP, So Like Candy and Playboy to a Man from Costello's 1991 LP, Mighty Like a Rose, The Lovers That Never Were and Mistress and Maid from McCartney's 1993 Off the Ground LP, and Shallow Grave from Elvis's record All This Useless Beauty from 1996, and many others. 
Their one live performance as a duo was at the Royal College of Music Benefit in 1995. We'll next hear a song from a 60s band recorded in the 80s. In 1966, The Who's Pete Townsend made a disparaging comment about the Beatles while being interviewed for the BBC One television program, a whole scene going on. John Entwistle and I were listening to a stereo LP of The Beatles, in which the voices come out of one side and the backing track comes out of the other. And when you actually hear the backing tracks of The Beatles without their voices, they're flippin' lousy. McCartney would have a chance to suddenly get back at Townsend almost three years later, when interviewed by Radio Luxembourg two days before the release of the White Album. Speaking of Helter Skelter, and the Who's I Can See for Miles, he said, That came about just because I'd read a review of a record which said, And this group really got us wild. There's echo on everything. They're screaming their heads off. And I just remember thinking, oh, it'd be great to do one. Pity they've done it. Must be great, really screaming record. And then I hear their record, and it was quite straight. And it was very sort of sophisticated. It wasn't rough and screaming and tape echo at all. So I thought, oh, well, we'll do one like that then. And I had the song called Helter Skelter, which is just a ridiculous song. So we did it like that because I like noise. The Beatles and The Who never collaborated in the 60s, but Townsend would be part of the all-star Rockestra band featured on the Rockestra theme and So Glad to Hear You from Wing's 1979 LP Back to the Egg, along with the drummer from tonight's Who track, Kenny Jones. Bassist John Entwistle would take part in Ringo's second all-star band, and McCartney wrote the song Giddy for singer Roger Daltrey's third solo album, One of the Boys. Although Keith Moon never played on any Beatles solo records, he was close friends with John Lennon and especially close with Ringo Starr, spending many crazy nights together during Lennon's Lost Weekend in L.A. Starr sang and played drums on Mooney's only solo LP, Two Sides of the Moon, and Starr's son Zack would become the drummer for The Who in 1994. Fitting being that Moon, who was Zack's godfather, gave him his first drum kit when he was eight years old. Sadly, Moon's last night was spent at a preview of the film The Buddy Holly Story and an after-party thrown by Paul Linda McCartney. Tonight we'll hear the Who's Eminence Front from the group's final studio album before their breakup, It's Hard.
that's it for this week Beatles fans I hope you enjoyed this non-Beatles Beatles multi-track meltdown I'm Anthony Robstelli author of I Want to Tell You the definitive guide to the music of the Beatles 1962-1963 tune in every Sunday night at 5pm Pacific 8pm Eastern to hear more deconstructed mixes of classic Beatles songs solo cuts live tracks and much much more you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter ShadyBearBKLYN and like the page for I Want to Tell You on Facebook see you next week